Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. It's good to be back with you uh, here at Soul Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Matthews. I'm a member of the congregation here. Uh, we are studying the seven letters to the seven churches in the first couple of chapters of Revelation. Now, last week I said I'd be doing a Q&A at the end of this uh, uh, sermon, and to compensate, I'll make the sermon slightly shorter. So that uh, ended up being about 50% correct. So there will still be a QA. and I just didn't make it any shorter this week. So... Um, I do have a question for the Q&A, though. Uh, I couldn't figure out what people from Smyrna were called this week. Like, you've got, uh, yeah, yeah, you've got people from um, Tasmania called Tasmanians, or if you're from Japan, you're Japanese. I sent, I thought, oh, great, we've got this great resource, David Jones. This is so helpful. Uh, I'll ask him, because that would be useful for my sermon. I said, hey, what do you call people from Smyrna? And he sent back the text saying, Smurfs. <laughs> that was less than helpful. Um, it took me a little while to realise he was having me on. Um, anyway, as we, as we continue our study of the seven letters uh, in the book of Revelation, we come to a very interesting letter this week, actually. Last week, we studied the fact that Jesus is present in his church, and that should both soothe and sober us. It should soothe us because he sees the good things that we're doing, and that's great. It should sober us because he sees the things that aren't so good. Uh, and that's why, really, every letter contains some congratulations, but also uh, some critique. He's saying, I see the good things, I see the bad things. Here's what makes the letter to the uh, church in Smyrna interesting. There's no critique. I don't know if you spotted that. There's no critique there at all. In some ways, they're actually a model church, aren't they? If Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. Now, that's interesting because we here at Soul Church, we're thinking about what church we want to be. Soul Church, if you think about it, we're almost teenagers right now, aren't we? Our church started 12 years ago. Uh, so we've been through the very excited about everything toddler phase, put everything in your mouth, try everything, uh, really, really excited about life. We've been through that phase. Um, and now we're the sort of slightly maladjusted, angst-ridden teenagers. We're trying to figure out who we are. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, and, of course, just as you go through a lot of transition from a toddler to a teen, we've been through a, a many great transitions, haven't we? If, if you look around, this church was planted as single uni students. Uh, there are not many of those here presently, are there? Uh, in the last couple of uh, months, or well, slightly longer than that, we've had a new building, brand new building. We've had a lot of new members. Uh, and Lord willing, in the next couple of months, uh, 12 months or so, we'll have a new pastor as well. That's a lot of change. And we're trying to think about, well, what kind of church are we going to be? I'll put it to you, Soul Church. The church in Smyrna is a good example for us as we think about who we are. So without further ado, let me pray, and then we'll dive into this letter. Almighty Father, we thank you and praise you for your scriptures. We thank you that they give us everything we need to know for your glory, our salvation, life and faith. I pray that now you would uh, uh, give Soul Church ears to hear, and I pray that we would walk out here more equipped to live on mission for the kingdom than when we walked in uh, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So about Smyrna, it was a very prosperous city. Much like Ephesus that we looked at last week, they had a lot of trade. Uh, the only thing really Smyrna had over Ephesus was it was a far more beautiful city. Great architecture, great roads, these sorts of things. Very, very beautiful city. The, the best part of Smyrna was this great big hill that had a whole bunch of uh, beautiful buildings on it. And that was called the Crown of Smyrna. That area. They also, in Smyrna, they had a very strong sense of identity. So they knew who they were. They were fiercely loyal. 
uh, to the Roman Empire, so much so that when all of that area, all of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, the Romans would think, where can we build this uh, new temple um, to the emperor at the time, who was Tiberius? It was actually Smyrna. They, they were judged to be the most loyal, the most faithful, so there stood the temple for Tiberius. Of course, there were not only uh, emperor worship, there were gods and goddesses and all this sort of thing. And it's really the same deal as last week. A lot of the trade, a lot of the industry happened in those pagan centres of worship. So the citizens of Smyrna were very proud people. They were happy who they, with who they were. They had a strong sense of identity. In much, in much the same way, if our footy team wins the grand final, we walk a foot taller the next day. These guys walked around a foot taller every day because they were from Smyrna. They were very proud of who they were. The average citizen from Smyrna would be financially prosperous and they'd be very well socially connected. That is, of course, unless you happen to be Christian. In the Roman Empire, for a religion to be legitimate, it had to be registered with the officials. Now, the Jews were registered with the officials, and so they had this good deal where they didn't have to worship uh, the emperor. And for a little while, it looked like Christianity was going to sneak in under the Jewish registration. But actually, uh, the Jews had a gut full of that, and pretty quickly the Jews said, no, 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 they're not with us. They very publicly abandoned the Christians, and the Christians fell out of the Jewish umbrella. And you can actually see that tension here in verse 9 of the letter where Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So the devil, one of the words um, for, we have for Satan, devil, actually comes from the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer. So, so what Jesus is saying is, you've got all these Jews around, they, they have nothing to do with the true God at the moment because they're slandering you. So they've actually got everything to do with the slanderer, Satan. They're of the synagogue of Satan. So to be Christian in Smyrna was to choose a life of poverty amongst rich peers. It was actually to choose shame amongst a proud people. And of course those saints were suffering because they refused to water down the gospel. There are of course some churches around us, aren't there? And it seemed as if they, if they had a patron saint, it would be something like St. Chameleon, the see-through, the translucent. They mirror the spirit of the age, don't they? And, of course, that church would get along famously with the world around it, but it wouldn't be much good at displaying Christ. Charles Spurgeon has a good quote. He says this, I don't think the devil cares how many churches you build if only you have lukewarm preachers and people in them. But Smyrna, thankfully, were not lukewarm. They actually keep their faith at a rolling boil even in the face of persecution. So here, Soul Church, this is what I want you to leave with tonight. Firstly, I hope that you capture a glorious vision of Christ, who is God victorious. Secondly, I hope that you see that our victory comes when we are in Christ. And thirdly, I hope you leave more equipped to live courageous and faithful lives. We're going to examine courage and faithfulness. So Christ is God victorious. That's my first point here. Last week, we saw that Jesus reveals himself differently to each church, depending on their circumstance. He shows a different part of himself. Listen to what he says to the church in Smyrna. He says this. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So let's look at that first part there. Jesus is the first and the last. That means he's the creator of all things, doesn't it? 
So Jesus existed before everything else, and then he created everything else that exists. Okay, Jesus relies on nothing for existence, and everything else relies on Jesus for existence. So he's the first. He's also the end or the last. So he's the last in the sense that just as he created the world, he'll come back and judge the world. He'll judge the living and the dead. He's also the last or, or the end in the sense that uh, he's the end in the same way that we might say, uh, talk about the chief end of man in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That means purpose. What's the chief end of man? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of man? And we might say Christ is the purpose of everything as well. It's just like if you look to the end of a movie, you see the point of it. Christ is also the end of everything there. So, so Christ is the creator of all things, the first. He's the, he's the judge and the point of all things as well, the last. That's what he wants Smyrna to know. And we see the fact that Jesus is the first and the last very clearly in the writings of the Apostle Paul as well. This is what he says, Colossians 1. For by him, that's Christ, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So the apostle here tells us all things were created by Christ. They're held together by Christ. And that they're created for Christ. So he's saying here it's, it's all Christ, beginning, middle and end, everything is Christ. And of course, if we talked about anyone else other than God in these terms, it would be a blasphemy, wouldn't it? If describing someone like that who was not God. That's one of the ways we see Jesus is revealed to Smyrna as God. Listen to what God himself, Yahweh, says through the prophet Isaiah. He says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, besides me there is no God. So Jesus needs the church in Smyrna to see that he is God, the first and the last. But of course, Jesus doesn't just say he's the first and the last. He also says he died and then came alive. As one theologian pointed out, Jesus is actually the only one who can say that, isn't he? So you think of Muhammad. He lived and then he died. You think of Confucius. He lived and then he died. It's only Jesus who lived, died and actually rose again. It actually came alive. See, death is the fate of all, isn't it? Death is the one certainty. Death is the one inevitability that we face. Death always has the last laugh. Death is the great sting in the tail of life, isn't it? But we see Jesus defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. We see here, Jesus is revealed to the church in Smyrna as God victorious. See, God victorious is the Jesus that we need to see here at Soul Church. That's actually a vision of Jesus that will get us through hard times. See, suffering in the name of Christ is absolutely impossible if you think Christ was just a cool dude or a wise guru or someone who had smart spiritual sayings. That view of Jesus, that'll just come apart in your hands during hard times. Christ's gift 
to the suffering church in Smyrna is to take their view of him and stretch it out at the edges. Remember who I am, he says. Remember who you're dealing with here. I'm the first and the last. I died, I came alive. See, God victorious is the Jesus that Hobart needs to see. That's a big Christ, a victorious Christ. Not a Christ who's running for mayor and could really use your support if only you give him a few minutes just to hear him out. Jesus doesn't need our votes, does he? He doesn't need our votes. He already won, so we don't evangelise, we don't share the gospel to unbelievers as if we're trying to get Christ in office. Hobart doesn't need Christ who's a used car salesman or smoke and mirrors. They don't need the politician who will do anything to get your vote, always over-promising, always under-delivering. Hobart needs Christ, the first and the last. Hobart needs God victorious. And, of course, God victorious is the Jesus we need our children to see as well. See, as we bring them through life, we teach them about the world. And we must teach them, we must teach them that everything, every species of tree, every landform, every discipline of study was created by Christ, is sustained by Christ, and is for Christ. It's all Christ, beginning and middle and end. That's what we must tell our children. So you can see here, Jesus reveals himself to the suffering church in Smyrna. And to persevere in hard times, that church must fix its eyes on Christ, who is God victorious. That's a Christ they must cling to. It's who we here at Soul Church must cling to. And that brings me to my second point here. True victory is found only in Christ. So Christ is the victor. We need to be victorious. But our only victory comes in Christ. So Christ defeats death and the devil. And as as David Jones pointed out recently, the best short summary of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins, isn't it? Jesus wins. It is one thing to hear that the war is won, though, and it's an entirely different thing to figure out which side of the war you're actually on. You might remember from school that it was the 7th of May, 1945, the German High Command. They authorised the signing of an unconditional surrender on all fronts. So World War II was finally over. Now, of course, at the time, whether or not that was actually good news had probably a lot to do with how German you were, didn't it? But if you think about World War II, that was a big war. But compared to the spiritual war, World War II was just a scuffle, wasn't it? It was a a barroom brawl compared to the spiritual war. So we see the spiritual war is the battle of all battles, isn't it? It's light against darkness. It's life against death. And it's been won. Jesus won. He's God victorious. The question is then, whose side are we on? Is Christ's victory our victory? Now, I'll show you how it is our victory. When you read through your Bible, you're going to see a few phrases popping up over and over and over again. They're just going to be beating along like a drum. One of the most important phrases you'll see in the Scriptures is the phrase, in Christ. See, the person of Jesus Christ, that person, is actually how the church receives all her blessings. We receive our blessings in in Christ. I want, to sh- I want to take you quickly through some scriptures that show us what we have in Christ. So first of all, we see God gave us grace before the world began in Christ. It says here, uh, he saved us and called us 
to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So in Christ, we're also redeemed. That means we're, we're set free from captivity and forgiven from all our sins. Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, we're not only redeemed, but we're also justified. That means we're, we're pardoned from our guilt and we're given God's perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We get that in Christ. In Christ, we're actually born again and made new. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, but hold the new has come. In Christ, we're actually sanctified. That means we're made holy or we're set apart. 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. And it's, of course, in Christ that we have eternal life. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I hope you can see here, Soul Church, every good thing we have as a Christian is ours in Christ. It's in Christ. Anything that's worth having at all is worth having because it comes from Christ. And that's how, of course, Jesus could say to the church in Smyrna that although they were poor materially, I wonder if you spotted that, they were very poor materially, they were actually rich. Why were they rich? Because they had Christ. They had surpassing riches in Christ. He says up there, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. They were rich in Christ. You see people without Christ in the world around you, don't you? You see people without Christ. And they're muddling around in their lives. They're trying to control all the circumstances. Or they're trying to ward off death or illness by anti-aging remedies. But of course, friends, the hope of the world isn't being in charge or invincible. It's being in Christ. So, of course, we're searching for a new pastor at the moment at Soul Church. We've got the selection committee sorted. We're looking for someone. We need someone who will point us to Christ, don't we? Every sermon, every circumstance, we need someone who will be quick to train our gaze to Christ Jesus. If we get that part right, then the rest is just details. We need to be fixed on Christ. We must remain in Christ because if we don't, we're finished. This is what Jesus says to the suffering church in Smyrna. He says, look, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, we'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's going to be hard. There's going to be prison. There's going to be death. Stick with me, Jesus says. Stick with me. Stay in Christ. If you stay here, you will get through. Staying in Christ is the only way the church will fulfill her mission at all. So what kind of church does Jesus want? Jesus wants a conquering church. Jesus wants a victorious church. In every single letter that we're going to study right here in the book of Revelation, these seven letters all, Jesus calls the church to conquer. Or in the NIV, he says, be victorious. We see that in our letter today. He says to the one who conquers, uh, they will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus wants his church to be victorious as she makes disciples of the nations and spreads the kingdom of God so it goes from the smallest seed to the biggest tree. 
Now, how do we do that? By what authority do we do that? Do we have any authority? We actually don't. We don't have any authority. We've only got borrowed authority. Thankfully, we're borrowing some pretty good authority. Uh, But that's all we have. We have Christ's authority. Remember when he says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So in Christ, the church has the authority and power of Christ. Without Christ, she's a charlatan. So we see here, we must stay in Christ. The devil will try and make us doubt. The world would have us be ashamed. And life might get so complex that we just don't know what to do. But at the end of the day, soul church, the equation couldn't be more simple. We stay in Christ, we live. We leave Christ, we die. Let me leave here with the words of D.L. Moody. He said this, Take your stand on the rock of ages. Let death, let judgment come. The victory is Christ's and yours through him. So we see here that Jesus is God victorious. And secondly, we saw here that our victory comes in Christ. Lastly, I want to close by looking at two virtues, two character traits that Jesus wants in his church. I'll read the last portion of the uh, letter again, verses 9 and 10. I know your tribulation, sorry about that font. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The two traits that Jesus wants from his church here are courage. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Courage. And faithfulness. It says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. Let's look firstly at courage here. The Lord commands his church to be courageous in perhaps one of the most eerie lines in Scripture that there is. I don't know if that popped out at you. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Sounds quite ominous. So he's saying the suffering will come. Don't be afraid. So in the Scriptures, we're actually told not to be afraid more than we're given any other commandment that shows us how important it is. The Hebrew word for courage literally means to show yourself strong, have a backbone. Jesus wants a church with a backbone. The church should not be the type of cowardly invertebrate that is blown over by stiff breeze. How do you think we go at that in this church? Do we have a backbone? Pastor and missionary Max Stiles, he had a very scathing critique of the American church. Have a listen and and think if what he says applies to us. Most Christians in the world must fear the raised fist. Americans fear the raised eyebrow. Is that true for us? Does our courage evaporate with the prospect of being uncool or unpopular? That's something we must think about, isn't it? So courage actually doesn't get much of a mention in a lot of the uh, lists of virtues we talk about so often, probably because it's not in the fruit of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 5. So why make such a big deal out of courage then? It's interesting what C.S. Lewis says about courage. He says, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but a form of every virtue at the testing point. Courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point. So courage is keeping all your godly attributes under fire. 
It takes courage to be joyful even when all your circumstances lead you to think that's the last thing you want to feel. It takes courage to love someone who makes it very, very hard to love them. Courage is holding fast to all the good things God's doing in your life, even when it's not easy. Courage is the form of every virtue at the testing point. I heard a fantastic story about a son that was being trained in virtue by his dad. He was told by a visitor to this house, and the visitor went round, and they were sitting at the family dinner table. And the, the young child walked around the table, looked at the vacuum cleaner which was out, and then walked past it. And then he looked up at his dad. His dad looked down at him, and his dad pointed, out of the room, thanks. Dad followed him out, gave him a big smack. The guy walks back in, walks up to the vacuum cleaner, and sinks his foot into it as hard as he can. He kicks it as hard as he can. And the visitor's going, what the heck just happened? What did I just see? And the dad said, well, our son is, uh, is scared of the vacuum. So every single time he walks by, he has to kick it as hard as he can. So this family was training their son in developing a, a courage. It's worth noting here as well, courage in the Christian life is not an optional extra. This might be a hard thing to hear, but the cowardly have no place in the kingdom of God at all. Near the end of Revelation, John writes about the restoration of heaven and earth, and this is what he says. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all lies, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death that Christians won't be hurt by. So as you can see here, incredibly important for the church to be courageous. And that, that makes us wonder, how do we do that? How do we become courageous? We must be, how do we do it? Firstly, I've got three points on this. Grow your courage by remembering the victorious work of Christ in the world. John 16.33, I've said these, this is Jesus speaking, I've said these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So our, Christian, our, our courage as Christians doesn't just have to be this white-knuckled willpower where we just try and muster it up. It doesn't have to come out of thin air. It's actually based on what Jesus did. So we grow our courage by remembering the victorious work of Christ in the world. Secondly, we grow our courage by fixing our eyes on godly men and women who display great courage. I don't know if you've heard the saying, many people say that the Christian life is more caught than taught. I don't know if you've heard that. It's more caught than taught. We are actually called to imitate the godly saints around us. Paul constantly says this in his letters, doesn't he? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'll show you a great example of where courage is catching. Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is Paul talking. And most of the brothers, this is the important part, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As I said, Christianity is more caught than taught. And Paul's public commitment to sacrifice safety and freedom and life leads itself uh, to, to have courage go around like a virus amongst the Christian community there. That's the sort of virus where you actually wouldn't mind a global pandemic, would you? If you're blessed with courage, live a public life. And your fellow believers 
will be ministered to by that. If you lack courage, look at the believers around you. Study, study Christ, study Paul, study the scriptures, church history and the saints around you in this room for examples to spur you on. Uh, for whoever wants it, I can um, lend them this book. I've finished reading it. It's a good book, Australian Women of Courage, Stories of Faith and Hope. Whoever wants to borrow that can come and talk to me after. That's just a good way to uh, look at other courageous saints. So we model, we imitate. And thirdly, we grow our courage by remembering whatever we lose for the kingdom of God, we'll actually, we'll actually gain back many times over. Look at the two examples from the passage that we read tonight. This is what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. I spoke earlier in the introduction about a hill that was so great, it was called the crown of Smyrna. It had heaps of beautiful buildings and architecture. The crown of Smyrna. And you can imagine the Christians in Smyrna, they're facing exile, they're facing imprisonment or death, and they're they're down because they won't get to see this beautiful place anymore. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said, yeah, you might lose the crown of Smyrna. But I've got a way better crown waiting for you right over here. Whatever we lose for the kingdom, we gain back many times over. The same is true for our life itself. Jesus says some of the saints in Smyrna will die. But by giving up that temporary, short, 60, 70, 80 year life for the kingdom, they gain eternal life. The one who conquers, Jesus says, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death, of course, is hell. It's the destruction of the body and soul in hell, in everlasting separation from God. See, those Christians uh, that stay strong will instead have eternal life. So we lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. We get a better life in return. We lose the crown of Smyrna. We get the crown of life. We lose our short temporary life. We get eternal life. Whatever we lose for the kingdom, we get back many times over. So prayerfully and through the Spirit of God, we grow our courage, Soul Church. We must grow our courage by fixing our eyes uh, on Christ and his victorious work in the world, fixing our eyes on other courageous saints and realising whatever we lose, we actually get back many times over. So now let's look at the second virtue. We had courage. Secondly, faithfulness. So faithfulness. What is faithfulness? Well, it's showing Jesus a loyalty that will be uninterrupted by trial or circumstance. So faithfulness doesn't cut and run at the first sign of trouble. Faithfulness clings to God, his word and his people. I used to have a sales job where I had to deal with KPIs all the time. If you haven't heard of that before, it stands for Key Performance Indicator. And that's good. I was competitive. It showed me how I was going. Got, the, got those KPIs. What's the church's KPI? Soul Church, what's our KPI? How do we know how we're going? The church's key performance indicator is faithfulness. To God, to his word, to those around us. It's not size. It's not conversions. It's not running lots of programs or having a great vibe. Those things are all fantastic, and we actually have had all of those things at Seoul recently. But that's the result of our faithfulness, not the result of chasing those things themselves. John MacArthur sums up that idea perfectly. He says this, Our responsibility... It's a creepy photo, isn't it? Um, Our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility alone to make it effective. One of the things we need to do to stay faithful at Soul Church 
is to read and teach and believe the whole Bible. See, the Westminster Confession of Faith, friends, it tells us that in the Scriptures we have everything we need for God's glory, for our salvation, for life and for faith. That's everything. Now, you note on my point on courage just a moment ago, I mentioned hell twice. Now, that's a, that's a very quick way to clear out a room at times, isn't it, to talk about hell. That's a hard doctrine to discuss. It makes us uncomfortable. Now, I know members here at Soul Church are committed to the truth. I know we, we are committed to the truth, and that's a strength of ours. But for hard truths, things like hell or any number of other bunch of things that are hard to talk about, we can't just leave it unspoken. We can't have a gentleman's agreement where we agree to believe it as long as we don't have to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, Sol, the next generation, they won't believe it. And that's how we depart from the truth. Speaking of departing from the truth, there's a branch of theology out there called liberal theology or progressive theology. And that doesn't have anything to do with a liberal party, uh, the political party. It's, the word liberal means free. It's a Christianity that's free from anchorage to the scriptures, to creeds, to confessions. The liberal Christian elevates themselves as the arbiter of what is true and what is not. They pick and choose. Take a bit of this, leave a bit of that. Rather than being driven by faithfulness to God and his word, the progressive, the liberal Christian seeks primarily to be credible or relevant to those around them, as if it was a great idea to let the unbelievers decide what the Christians believe. So within liberal or progressive Christianity, there's a movement that has actually claimed some people at Soul Church. There were some people who were here that aren't here because they went through this process. The process is called deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a process of sort of rethinking everything you thought you knew about the Bible, about God, about church. For many people, that process seems cool and fresh, and many people have been lured in by that. Of course, there's nothing wrong to doing research into why you believe what you believe. That's good. Jesus wants a well-interrogated faith. But as soon as you elevate yourself to the judge of right and wrong or truth and falsehood, then you're in big trouble. So let me say, soul church, the word of God must be our foundation. It must be below us as our foundation. It must be above us as our authority. It cannot be behind us in our rear view mirror as we set sail from it. Let us never move on from the truth of God's word. Deconstruction is a con that leads to destruction. I say this because for soul to be faithful, it needs to be made up of faithful people. The saying goes, you can't make a good omelette out of bad eggs. You won't have a faithful church full of faithless people. Keep loving and reading the scriptures, soul church. Keep loving God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. Keep stirring one another up to love and good works. That's the best thing you can do for this church. Jesus desperately wants soul be a faithful church. We can't make people become Christians. We can't make our church grow, but we can make sure we are faithful to God and his word. So let me close with this. This is my conclusion. Courage and faithfulness, the two virtues that Christ wants from the church in Smyrna. He wants them from soul church. He wants them from all churches everywhere. I'll close by saying that courage 
and faithfulness, they must go hand in hand in the life of every believer. I don't know if you've seen where there's been a lopsided instance. See, if you have a lot of courage without faithfulness, you're just going to walk around trying to clean people's heads right off. That's what you're going to do. You're going to be very ready to call out the heresy or have the hard conversation, but you won't actually be ready to have that over a long period of time with people. Someone who's full of courage with no faithfulness will try and change things and then if it doesn't go their way immediately, they'll chuck all their toys out of the pram and they'll leave. And they just generally don't play nice with others. You often hear these people say something along the lines of, well, hey, look, if you want to make an omelette, you've got to crack a few eggs. But you just sometimes look at their lives. You can see, you can see a lot of broken eggs, but after 20 years, you actually don't see any omelette. And you just start to feel that these guys start like, they like breaking eggs. That's what they like to do. Courage must go with faithfulness. But of course, the opposite is true, isn't it? Faithfulness without courage can lead your presence in the church or in society, uh, can lead it to become completely inert. It's like sitting in the back seat of a car while it rolls gently off a cliff. But you don't say anything because you don't want to be rude and interrupt the conversation out there. You can keep attending a church for a long period of time. You can keep relationships for a long period of time, be very faithful. But if you stay silent while liberalism or heresy slowly metastasizes, then that reflects a lack of courage, a failure of nerve. If we're to be the kind of saints Jesus wants us to be and the kind of church he wants us to be, we must be filled with courage and faithfulness together. So, Soul Church, I hope you've been able to capture tonight a glorious vision of Christ who is God victorious. I hope you've been able to see that our only hope of victory is being in Christ. And lastly, I hope that you are more equipped this week to go out and live courageous and faithful lives. Let me close with the words that Jesus gives the church here. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word and we praise you for your uh, scripture. We ask that you would embed this word deep into our hearts and change us through it. We pray this confidently because we know we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.